let's take just a moment to um, <clears throat> remind ourselves and make clear again the uh, point of what we're doing right now, frame where we are and the trajectory of what we're trying to do um, right now in this set of talks, uh, or rather in, in this talk. Uh, so we were identifying uh, a group or a list of elements or aspects of the imaginal to try and make more clear what we really mean by that word imaginal, which different people use. Um, and so that to uh, support the understanding and the um, grasping of the conceptual framework that we're using and employing, and also to kind of uh, deepen, enrich, and refine the sensitivity and the discernment in practice when one begins to notice these things, pay attention to them, and tune to them, uh, these aspects and elements of the imaginal constellation experience. <coughs> and in addition to that, we are uh, pointing out the possibility of um, noticing and tuning to uh, some of these aspects in different ways in order to, if you like, support the movement um, of or the development, the evolution of some perception uh, into the more fully imaginal realm, the more authentically imaginal realm. And we said there was a spectrum of the uses of imagination and kind of at one end is the more what we're calling imaginal. So that these elements can be uh, played with, uh, attended to in a way that uh, amplifies them, ignites um, that specific node or element aspect that one's paying attention to, and then that in turn can ignite or, or spread that illumination that activation, that uh, soul life can spread through the other nodes of the lattice, the other stars of the constellation. So, the gen general point about this kind of amplification or recognition, as we said, we can notice uh, one of these um, elements or aspects. And here I am working with an image, here I am uh, with, a, with a certain perception, and I notice one of these elements. I bring my attention to that, and I kind of um, uh, sensitively uh, tune into that particular quality. Or I uh, bring a, a delicate question to bear in relation to that node, um, so, for example, is this imaginal figure autonomous? Do they seem independent? And just the introduction of the um, question lightly, it uh, shapes my attention in a way that um, shines a light on that particular element and may the light may, uh, as I said, illuminate, ignite, um, amplify that element, draw it out to the consciousness, bring it to life, really, and then from there the whole thing may uh, uh, become more imaginal. Or the question, is this imaginal figure, uh, do, they, do I have a sense that they're, would I call them real or not real? 
And so sometimes the questions can be posed in, in actual language in, in, in time like that. Sometimes that's way too clunky. It's more a kind of question that's very subtly implicit in, in the very attention itself, in the looking, very, very uh, nuanced and delicate. Or another question, another kind of way of um, bringing a kind of very sensitive, curious attention. Um, again, say with the example of an imaginal figure or material perception um, that we're wanting to, uh, again, help it move, evolve uh, along the spectrum towards a, f- a fully imaginal, fully sensing the soul. Um, another question might be, am I loved? Am I loved by this uh, other that I am perceiving? Um, and or what kind of love do they have for me? What's the quality or the character of of that love uh, that may be there that I might sense? So again, this um, possibly just noticing, possibly a kind of questioning or a kind of curious, curious, sensitive attention attention to one of those elements or aspects on the list that we're going through. Um, And thirdly, the possibility that one can actually um, shift one of those elements, move it, turn it on, switch it on, um, wiggle it or jiggle it or change it a little bit so that it turns on. And in being turned on, it turns on the other elements and the whole constellation, the whole lattice um, is is turned on, illuminated, um, uh, amplified to resonate in, uh, in, in that imaginal kind of wavelength of things. And sometimes, uh, so there's those three possibilities, just noticing, just a kind of questioning or sensitive, curious attention, the possibility of actually focusing on one and shifting it, switching it on, turning it on, wiggling, jiggling it until it comes on. Um, very, very delicate, all this. Very delicate, very light, not so clunky. I've said before, and I'll say it again right now, you know, a lot of the evolution, I think, when we talk about practice going deeper or evolving or maturing, a lot has to do with things becoming more subtle, actually. Um, not, not so much more fireworks, more clunkiness, more grossness. A lot has to do, I think, with things... Uh, the experience is becoming more subtle and, and correspondingly our awareness and our um, responsiveness and our uh, responses becoming much more sensitive, much more delicate and nuanced and subtle. And sometimes there's a kind of third or fourth possibility. We can actually um, start with one of these deliberate, uh, uh, deliberately with one of these elements um, that may be accessible um, for us at that time. So, for example, we might just have accessible to us a general sort of humility in relationship with um, what might even be a very vague sense of divinity. And there's just the sense of um, my humility um, in, in, in the face of um, the divine or, or the, whatever words one wants to use. And then and in that humility, and uh, despite the vagueness there, uh, again, it functions, that, that node is being illuminated, amplified, brought, brought out more, brought to life more, and that can spread.
And the vagueness may, may remain. You know, we talked about um, a sense of divinity as one of the other nodes. Um, well, that may remain vague, or it may, may get more clear or more particular or whatever. Um, or another one that might de- one deliberately start with is actually loving. So here, I'll come, I'll come back to this later as an example. So here's this um, perception of another. And what if I actually express love? We said that love was one of these nodes, love, loving and being loved. What if I actually just now, deliberately, I feel the germ, the seed, the um, basis of that love, you know, it's just a little bit, what if I amplify it? What if I express it? What if I uh, tune into it, switch it on? Um, Then what happens? Um, Or it might be, as another example, it might be for for those who have a a kind of, what I would call a deep, a deep understanding of emptiness, and one that's really accessible um, in the perception. One can um, have that understanding in, in the moment, in the, in the actual perception of things, of um, the middle way of emptiness, neither real nor not real, and the kind of magic of that. And uh, if you do know that, that kind of level that I'm talking about, in, in the way that opens up all kinds of possibilities as well as the sacredness of things. And then that middle way of emptiness, it's, for some people it's quite easy then uh, it's fertile ground to open up the middle way of the imaginal that we'll come back to shortly. And then that can uh, open up the whole realm, the whole tenor uh, field and uh, yes, texture and wavelengths of the imaginal. Or it might be that what's accessible right from the beginning in a deliberate way is that fullness of intention, that element that I uh, drew attention to, I can't remember what number it was on our sort of list um, uh, the, the fullness of like I I am here I am intending in practice I am in a stance of relating to this figure or this other or this imaginal perception not primarily for my sake um, but for something bigger for the sake of soul making for the sake of uh, for the sake of the divine for the sake of the Buddha nature whatever however one whatever makes sense to one. That fullness of intention is also going to have a a kind of alchemical catalyzing um, uh, capacity at that point, potentially. Or it may be, and we've, uh, I think I've suggested this, and we've done a little bit on on some of the retreats. One can start with uh, a deliberate image of one's energy body. uh, Or a deliberate image of one's body. So, for example, um, just... uh, imagining the body as a body of light, and maybe it wants to be a particular color, blue, or it could, could be anything, um, and uh, and just staying with that imagination, and then tuning, it's a deliberate imagination, but then feeling what that feels like, what the body feels like, with sensitivity, tuning to that particular wavelength of that image, and that sense of the energy body, and see what opens up then from this image of the energy body and 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 the sense of it. And it may be that other images open up or that, that itself becomes genuine imaginal image or something starts to interact with that or it relates to its um, environment, its immediate environment um, in, in, a, in a way that's, uh, you know, Im- imaginally, um, genuinely imaginal or sensed with soul, etc., 
I think on one retreat, in fact I remember on one retreat we did a guided meditation uh, with the Om Mani Padme Hum Mantra and uh, uh, conceiving and imagining the, the syllables as jewels uh, and, and the body as made somehow in some mystical way, made of these cosmic magical um, jewels of compassion of the, um, the syllables of the Om Mani Padme mantra, or might just be jewels. Um, yes, again, magical, mystical jewels. What is it to have a body of jewels? Um, or it might be something kind of at the other end of the... Uh, the jewels can be very hard, can't they? Adamantine. But it um, might be something at the other end of the spectrum um, in terms of earthiness and solidity. One, What is it to imagine the body as, as a body... Uh, made of, or at one with, or mixed with, or emerging from the the, the roots of trees underground in the in the in the dark, damp, fragrant soil, the moist earth, um, and actually imagining that, and then again tuning into that and see what comes from that. So, different possibilities in terms of how we use these nodes, how we relate to the nodes in terms of the uh, supporting uh, and, and encouraging that, that movement into the fully imaginal um, and the fully sensing the soul. Uh, so, we were going through our list and um, we got to, I think, number 16, what I was calling number 16 depending on how you count, how you slice it up um, and uh, that was meaningfulness and we made the point that specific meanings, specific echoings of the image with life and the life with the image um, uh, uh, and the sense of maybe particular kind of duty or particular values, these are these elements are all kind of um, if you like, sub-elements or part of uh, the aspect of meaningfulness. But but meaningfulness, that's what the suffix fullness is partly intended to mean. Meaningfulness is something larger than any specific meaning um, or even a, a limited, finite collection of meanings or echoes or, or whatever, uh, or, or reduction to values. Um, meaningfulness is something larger. It's, it's somewhat akin... Uh, in its kind of largeness and uh, openness to the kind of infinite echoing and mirroring. There's, it's, it's bigger than individual echoes or ways that life and image reflect each other. So meaningfulness is more like, uh, we, we say, like this image or this perception I have is pregnant with meaningfulness. Um, and so, so there's something... Uh, discernible and something half-hidden, just like when you uh, see a pregnant uh, woman or or um, animal, um, the pregnancy is is visible, you know, and and palpable. Um, but uh, but what what is um, what is being gestated is not yet visible, and it may, of course, it, it, in the case of pregnancy, it will come visible. So sometimes things emerge 
um, from the imaginal, from the sensing the soul, from a hiddenness into manifestation. But we never exhaust that meaningfulness. The pregnancy, if you like, is never fully over. One is uh, that the, the imaginal is always pregnant. The soul is always pregnant and always giving birth, or at least very often giving birth again and again. Um, so there's something kind of tangible and something obscure. There are the intimations of meaning, and all that is um, uh, intended by the word meaningfulness. But the obscurity or the not quite knowing what's there, um, half hidden, uh, it does not make uh, meaningfulness any less powerful for that. Uh, so this, the fact that we're not entirely clear what it is that so moves us and so has this m- meaningfulness for us and m- gives us a sense of devotion and orientation and uh, functions like a beacon for us, touches our heart, touches our soul, and the fact that we're not exactly clear what it is, we can't neatly define it, wrap it up, sum it up, um, does not take away any of the power of that meaningfulness. Quite the contrary. Okay. And then number, I think, 17 on on the list, um, on our loose list, is something that I would call something like eternality or timelessness. So eternality or timelessness or at least some kind of alteration of the time sense. Um, so some sense of the timelessness or eternality of an image is an aspect of what makes it imaginal in our uh, language, in our conception. And I've talked about this before in a few places. Uh, and for me it's a really important element. There's a difference between uh, what, or rather imaginal images have a, what, what I was calling an iconic nature versus a narrative nature. They don't go somewhere in time towards some grand resolution like a story, uh, some heroic finale uh, and redemption necessarily. The the power and the redemption of the imaginal is not in its narrative um, apotheosis, it's not in its narrative kind of culmination or end point. So this to me is quite important. I, I call it iconic rather than um, narrative. Images are tend to be iconic rather than narrative. So for example, you know, in, uh, well, take some, uh, nowadays a lot of people are, uh, you know, very importantly drawing attention to the need, to, so as, as hopefully humanity um, is, makes a transition or an evolution, really, a development, um, of wisdom and practical wisdom into, let's say, 100% renewable energy. So, so important. Um, coming away from fossil fuels and polluting fuels. And uh, so the imagination, uh, the faculty of the skillful imagination that human beings have is a very important faculty. Can we imagine that future when uh, everyone um, is... Uh, their homes are powered and energy comes and transport comes from 100% uh, renewable energy, electric cars and, and whatnot. And can we imagine that and imagine the stages that might move us towards that, uh, that tra- might transition us towards that, that um, 
uh, state, um, and, uh, and and that there's no you know depletion of resources, um, minerals, etc., from the planet species loss. Can we imagine that? The skillful use of the imagination. That's more of a narrative image. It's not yet imaginal. Um, imaginal has more of this timeless kind of eternal quality. It's not moving in time necessarily towards some goal. Uh, or if it is, because um, some images do have a kind of relatively narrative quality. It's what I tend to call, uh, use with the word fantasy. Um, but they have this aspect that they think it's always already happening. The story, all the elements of the story, all the stages of this fantasy, of this narrative image, are actually somehow still happening, always happening in hierophanic time, and holy time, and, and sacred time. And somehow, curiously, the beginning is happening at the same time as the end uh, of the story, even if they're, uh, on the face of it, separated in time. So that there's still this timeless or eternal sense, however, whatever words we use to describe that, in an image, an imaginal image that's um, that has uh, that is relatively uh, it's of a relatively narrative nature. So what this means in practice, um, regarding to this element, is that um, we can pay attention when we're working with an image to. Uh, uh, the sense of temporality, um, the, te- the sense of temporality within and of that image, um, or that, if you like, imaginal perception, or the way we're sensing something with soul. So we pay attention to the sense of temp- temporality and, and notice it. Now this is often quite subtle. Um, and it's as if the, the two levels go on at once, the, the sort of movement in time, of course, and, um, uh, and, and the, the, the eternal aspect. But can we note, start tuning to the sense of temporality, and, 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 and when we, sorry, noticing the sense, attending and noticing the sense of temporality, and noticing and tuning to the, if you like, the sense of timelessness within the larger sense of temporality, the sense of eternality somehow um, uh, pervading this image. And that, again, uh, just as with the other elements, that noticing can... Um, amplify that very sense of eternality, which brings the whole thing, sort of raises up, if you like, or if you don't like that vertical innuendo, um, uh, amplify or illuminate or bring alive um, that element of the imaginal, and then that element, um, again, spreads and the whole thing becomes imaginal. So there are many possibilities and flavors of... um, Time and also of timelessness um, when we um, sense with soul when in in the imaginal. It's not it's not just one kind of experience we're talking. There's many possibilities. Um, so, for example, um, uh, one may be dwelling uh, with with a sort of whole body energy body awareness and um, the sense of eternality of of, if you like, of oneself as image, and of one's life as image, um, but in a certain way, meaning 
um, in this case, just as an example, the sense of one's whole life with its narrative and its difficulties and its dukkha and its challenges and its tragedies and uh, and and all of that, um, its story and the conditions of body, of soul, of uh, uh, story and conditions of relationship with others and world and all of that kind of um, sensed or seen, so to speak, from, if you like, after death, from um, out of time, sub specii eternatis, uh, meaning from the perspective of eternity, from, yes, from the perspective of eternity. So what is it to get a sense of oneself and one's whole life, that whole stretch, birth to death, maybe even more, um, uh, seen, if you like, from after death, from out of time. And that's that's one possibility, I'm just giving a possibility, um, of a kind of eternality or timelessness. And one can sometimes actually uh, you know, find one's way into that perspective with the energy body, and if there's... Um, uh, that energy body awareness and that eternity can open up the, the door to the imaginal, the doors, the gates to the imaginal, uh, the m- gates to the mundus imaginalis. The imaginal world can open up just from seeing oneself. Oneself becomes image, one's life becomes icon um, and becomes seen with soul, sensed with soul. And uh, this will bring with it the other elements, um, the humility that we talked about, the fullness of intention that was talked about. It will ignite, illuminate, amplify, uh, bring those into existence. And likewise, those elements, for example, humility and the fullness of intention, will likewise help that sense of, in this case, beyond timeness or um, timelessness, uh, this perspective of eternity um, will help to ignite, illuminate, amplify, bring that into existence. And then um, one is sensing sensing oneself, sensing one's life and one's death and that whole journey with soul as well as this moment now, as well and including the dukkha, all the dukkha, the whole life with the dukkha. And then, and and that itself is is uh, extraordinarily beautiful, and extraordinarily uh, redeeming, uh, healing, transforming, uh, prayerful, mystical perception. Uh, sensing all that with soul, and then and then at that point, and then maybe other possibilities that open up from that. One can relax that sort of whole life. Um, from the perspective of eternity, subspeciate eternatis, one can relax that whole perspective and emphasis a little bit, and then there's um, other aspects or an other um, relationship with time can be sensed with soul, other relationship with timelessness. So, for example, the unknown of the future and the moment can come uh, and be sensed with soul, that very unknowing, we do not know our fate We do not know the future. But when it's arrived at that way, opened up that way, with that kind of fullness and richness and dimensionality, that's quite different from just uh, a kind of more flat, 
um, acknowledgement or recognition of a very basic insight that we don't know the future, and one then, uh, uh, for the sake of equanimity, abides in 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 uh, simple not knowing. Quite different, quite a different level of uh, sensing and per- perception there. Now, someone uh, maybe, uh, let's say, someone was hearing this and uh, hadn't listened to all the other stuff, and was they say, what, what, "What are you saying? Are you saying this is something that's not impermanent?" And um, and for obviously for a Buddhist, that would be a kind of uh, uh, either horrific heresy or um, or just uh, ridiculous or whatever. So. I probably don't need to say this to, to you guys at this point, but of course um, images are impermanent. Of course everything is impermanent. Um, uh, impermanence is obvious, you know, and we're not at this, um, by introducing this um, aspect or element and drawing attention to it of eternality, of timelessness, we're not kind of um, dismissing uh, the... Uh, perspective that, that things are impermanent, that images, this very image um, that one is perhaps so moved by um, and senses as eternal, it, the very image is impermanent, comes and goes. Um, so we're somehow holding both at once again. Yes, of course, it's obvious it's impermanent. And there's this timeless kind of strata or dimension or aspect to it. Sometimes, again, people with um, uh, a, a lot of deep emptiness practice, if that's something you've developed or just know that it's a possibility, one really can come to the point where one thoroughly and absolutely knows the emptiness of time, alongside everything else. And that knowing of the emptiness of time um, kind of opens up or, and legitimizes a lot of possibilities in practice. A lot of possibilities. Um, so we're kind of, as I said, holding the impermanence and the, um, not so much permanence as timelessness, um, but you could say permanence, yeah, always already happening. We're holding them together. As William Blake said, uh, help us or save us from single vision. Save us from single vision. It's just, it's just this or it's just that. It's just eternal. It's just impermanent. There is this capacity in the imaginal to see uh, with m- more than one way of looking at once, if you like. And there's nothing here um, that uh, is is um, being kind of presented or um, practiced because one can't face the truth of impermanence and the fact of death. There's completely nothing to do with that. Um, so all this practice is grounded in, yes, death comes, and we don't know when, usually. Everything dies, everyone dies, I will die, you will die. Everything is impermanent, and this we do need to face up to that in life. We need to open the heart and the being to that. Um, so it's not coming out of an inability or a refusal to face that kind of uh, reality. And nor is it a kind of clinging to this sense of timelessness at the expense of a acknowledgement of impermanence. 
hardly need to say this. It's not we're not talking about here of images of happy ever after and say, so, oh that will be that will be what will happen or um, uh, or an image that kind of ends all, all rosy with a happy ending or whatever. We're talking about something completely different. In what I just described about sensing the whole of one's existence with soul, there is still death, there is still suffering, and sometimes quite a difficult uh, suffering that a life is afflicted by or given to handle, etc. It's not, it's not um, transmuting that into some other kind of ending. Yeah. So I don't. I, I know I don't need to say this. Okay. Um, number eighteen is what I've been calling um, the imaginal middle way, or the middle way of the imaginal, or the theater, uh, theater quality, the theater aspect of the imaginal. Um, so uh, this. Um, non-reification. It's not taken as real and, and literal and purely concretized. Um, and uh, the relationship with the real self in a real world, etc., is much more um, less solid, less fixated. So, you know, um, someone might have, so I had an image or I had a vision of um, of teaching or of serving or whatever it is, and traditional uh, or, or other maybe more usual kind of dharma or spiritual approaches to uh, uh, to that kind of thing. Someone um, having those kind of images or visions of themselves teaching or serving or um, whatever it is. Um, would be will let go of the attachment to whether that um, vision materializes and whether you get what you want, whether it comes to the part, whether whether it comes to pass. So there's the the teaching of yeah, you had that image, but just let go of any attachment to that, um, to whether it materializes, or it might be again in the more kind of uh, usual um, or common. Um, approach. Um, can you be aware and discern with that vision or that image of serving or whatever it is? Because um, it may be, uh, if you like, true or accurate or kind of prophetic intuition, if you like, of something uh, of the future or something that you're called to. Or it may be your um, delusion or your wishful thinking or, or whatever it is. But in either of those two kind of more common or, or usual spiritual approaches, um, they both rest on a kind of realist appropriation of the image or the vision. And they refer it to simply, to directly, to literally, and to concretely, to a real self in a real world of real time. Yeah, so all these the other elements that we're talking about, the, the timelessness, and that that's that's kind of not there, and it's all about um, a real possibility in a in a real self in a real world. And in neither case are those two either let go of the attachment to whether it materializes, or uh, discern. You know, is that is that an intuitive glimpse of the future possibility, um, or is it just your kind of uh, 
d- delusion there, your wishful thinking. And in neither case is the image treated imaginally. It's, it's, in neither case is it related to um, as or allowed to be an Im- imaginal image in our sense of the word. Um, instead, it has to be categorized as either real or not real, either real or delusion. And the middle way, the imaginal, kind of um, is not content with either real or not real, either real or delusion, real or papancha. Um, so this is what I mean by the middle way. Neither real nor not real seem adequate or accurate or um, truly appropriate kind of uh, categories or labels for this imaginal perception or this what I'm perceiving when I sense with soul. Um, and another uh, word I, I, I use here is the, the theatre, the theatre element of it. Um, so when we say theatre, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean dramatic. Remember I was giving examples of images that are really not dramatic at all, or even particularly narrative. They're just a sort of freeze frame of something. Um, uh, so th- the word theatre doesn't imply a kind of grand drama um, or narrative. Um, but it implies this kind of um, uh, this kind of quality of or, or status of um, this figure, this perception has um, power for the soul, has um, has a certain depth, a certain uh, ability to affect and move me or us. It's important to me. Um, it even feels necessary. Um, it's soul-making comes with it. Um, there's this infinite echoing, mirroring, all that. We talk about poetic truth or artistic truth. So well, that's another, another way of saying this. We're talking about something that's true, but it's a poetic truth. It's not a literal truth or necessarily a concrete truth. And so, uh, like, like if you've... I don't know if you've ever been, uh, as I have, um, to, to, to a play in a theatre... And the theatre is very small, and um, and one's sitting very near the actors, and um, uh, the actors may be very good, and and you, it's a very vulnerable, it's a very intimate, vulnerable experience to be in 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 a you know good theatre with with powerful actors in that way. It's very intimate. You are involved. You are. You cannot not be involved unless you really go into some kind of shutdown mode. It's actually vulnerable for you as a member of the audience. You're right there. Um, Open. Your being is open. The actors can see you. Yeah, so all this relates to imaginal figures as well. And when we sense things with soul, which I'm using interchangeably, um, you, you, you can't be untouched in that situation, unimplicated. It's not the the cold distance of the you know the um, ideal scientific method. It's uninvolved, um, and so it's when when we um, are practicing and something's imaginal, we can notice. Oh, it has this kind of theatre-like quality, in terms of it's not it's not real because it's theater but it's not not real either and um 
I don't just mean by by not real. It's not not real by the fact that it was just happening. So therefore, something exists. I mean, I mean, there's something. There's a deeper kind of poetic truth being communicated there. Um, so, but this aspect, and and again, it's something we can notice. And I, I uh, am pretty sure that in time, anyone doing these imaginal practices and kind of getting into it, will just notice that this is an element, this is an aspect of of the imaginal, which, again, we may not notice at first. It may not be obvious to us at first. Um, this kind of, It has a quality of theatre, has an air of theatre to it. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of neither real nor not real. Neither of those labels or categories really applies. It's in the imaginal middle way. Again, noticing that uh, tenor of it, that status of it, that air or quality to it, um, amplifies that quality. It becomes more apparent. Over time, it becomes something that one can just notice immediately um, with practice. Uh, and and then and then again, the whole constellation can amplify, illuminate, be uh, evolve to the uh, more authentically, fully imaginal. So that word play that I, I tend to use a lot in in my teaching, uh, whatever I'm teaching, um, dharma wise and practice wise, um, is is necessary or relevant, let's say, in in both of its sentences. In both of its senses, excuse me, um, we go we go to the theatre and we see a play. So there there is something of a play happening, um, but something that has this artistic, poetic, necessary, vital, deep truth to it at the same time as its theatre. Um, play, uh, in the other sense, is is necessary as well. The capacity and the permission. Um, for us to play in meditation and with perception and in life. Play with concepts, play with experiences, play with ways of looking, play with energies. Are, are we able and are we free? Are we granted permission to play? To me that's absolutely necessary for, um, actually for, uh, it's the way I tend to teach, I think it's, it's maybe not necessary, but really, really helpful for all practice. Um, and in this realm of the um, imaginal and soul-making, I would say it's vital, absolutely vital, necessary. So it's an ingredient play, uh, in both senses, it's an ingredient of imaginal practice. And, uh, and it's an ingredient of soul-making that um, remains fertile and expanding. Something can be soul-making, then, it, then it's something freezes. We've been through all this on previous retreats when we talk about the soul-making dynamic and eros, psyche, logos, and all that. Um, so we could say play, or the quality of play, the aspect of play, in both its senses, its senses is a prerequisite of soul-making and imaginal practice. So some <coughs> practitioners have um, you know, deep desire that's there are no there's no doubt about their desire and their aspiration and their dedication to practice and the path. But that element of play is not so easy for them. Or uh, for different reasons, uh, possibly, uh, it, may, it may be one of them, maybe they're just they're actually the, the, the capacity 
capacity to play is inhibited by the very image or the logos, the psyche, or the logos of what practice looks like. Um, and so I, I in, encounter this occasionally. Um, but so important, I think, play in both its centers, senses. And you know, you just have to watch children playing to see how sometimes, how very serious that play can be. How uh, captivating it is for them. Um, and that's a, to me, it's something really, really beautiful. And they're not mistaking it for reality. If they're playing whatever it is, um, soldiers or, you know, whatever, they're not mistaking that for a real world sex, but I just shot you, bang, bang, you're dead, and now you get up. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, uh, there's, no, there's no confusion. They're just so with with a play and playing and this imaginary way in the theatre. There's no confusion about kind of uh, categories of reality. For the most part, we'll come back to this, actually. But, um, but the play can be very serious, very engrossing, very vital and vitalizing and, and, and deeply important. And, of course, you know, we talk about playing music. Um, see uh, the, the play and, and the beauty and the necessity and the seriousness of... Um, well, I, I know for me, as a, as, a, as a jazz musician, when I was playing and all that. Um, so what's the... Sometimes, what I've also noticed recently is sometimes people... Um, and understand me, I don't think I've really touched on this so much, or not really made it transparent, the relationship of this imaginal middle way to the middle way of emptiness, and the more traditional um, middle way that the Buddha referred to in the Kachayana Sutta in the Pali Canon, and then was really amplified by Nagarjuna and the whole Mahayana teachings, um, middle way referring to emptiness between is and is not exists and doesn't exist, real and not real. And so what's the relationship between that sort of traditional emptiness middle way and the uh, imaginal middle way? They're not quite one and the same. Um, the, I would say the emptiness middle way is, uh, for me, is extremely important, but in, in terms of imaginal practice, it's more like understanding that emptiness middle way is part of a much larger the much larger conceptual framework of the whole of practice and, and a certain um, range and directionality uh, and range of directions of possibility of Dharma. In other words, understanding that empty, that deep, deeply, the middle way of emptiness um, is an integral part of a, of a much larger con- logos and conceptual framework which we're trying to kind of um, unfold and explain and, and also, in fact, develop. Um, um, so that's it has a kind of different place in in the scheme of things, if you like. Not entirely, because for some people the um, in, uh, the emptiness middle way, when they really get a deep sense of that, it actually that's the thing that for some people opens up the imag- the possibility of the imaginal as a viable um, and kind of um, sensible path uh, 
legitimized and also opens up that that sense of sacredness and then and the possibility of perceiving things imaginally with the imaginal middle way in the imaginal middle way so for some people that's what is that that understanding the emptiness middle way is a springboard um either in in conceptually or in actual practice, the practice has actually arrived at that very deep sense of the, the emptiness middle way, and that's what opens up the imaginal middle way. Other people, and I wonder whether they're in the majority, um, other people don't need that deep sense of the middle way of emptiness um, in their practice. It's quite a deep level we're talking about. Um, and they don't need that. Um, it's more that they have uh, they have a more... Uh, a poet sense of things, of poetic truth, of artistic truth. Um, they have the sense, and they they can um, uh, feel it of of the the kind of um, theatre element. So it's just there in the perception. It's there integrated anyway into their um, life, into the way they live and consider things and relate to existence. The, already this potential of the imaginal middle way and as I said earlier if it's not it will emerge just as one gets familiar with the mundus imaginaris with the imaginal realm and the perceptions there one, one actually notices like oh oh yeah there's that quality and that distinguishes it this imaginal middle way from um, uh, other perceptions so for me and I thought quite a lot about this when I was starting to um, teach this kind of thing and, and was unsure whether to include it or not. But I, more and more I really lean to, towards uh, wanting to include it in what it, what's, what, as, a, as a necessary part of soul-making, necessary part of what it means for something to be imaginal um, and for something to be sensed with soul. Um, I feel it's absolutely crucial, and not just for the philosophical sense um, uh, and and kind of uh, framework that it gives, um, not just in the service of um, creating and establishing and opening up and filling out a kind of adequate and robust conceptual framework for the whole everything that we're doing here. Um, that I think that's very important too. Actually, I think it's very very important, but. Um, it's more Im- crucial in the sense of this really helps the balance um, in regard to, especially when there's a lot of eros, um, especially when the soul is on fire that way and there's all that beauty and all that um, attraction to this path and opening and all kinds of things are opening up. Um, it really helps this middle way, this sense of the middle way, the theatre element, um, really helps the navigation, the balance, and, as I say, the fertility. Uh, it, it helps in soul-making. It's an, uh, it's an element of any soul-making. Um, and, you know, I'm going to come back to this because it's actually not quite that simple, but... Um, let's just say that for now, and and I would like to just emphasise just how important that is. Okay, so that was number nineteen, I think. Um, 
Number 20 is um, something we've actually already said, that um, the imaginal, or soul-making, or sensing with soul, is in, like, like they say of beauty, it's in the eye of the, excuse me, in the eye of the beholder. Excuse me, or we may say in the soul of the beholder, in the senses of the beholder. Um, and, and that realization, that um, awareness, that recognition, that concept, um, helps uh, the, the, the imaginal middle way. When, when I realize, oh, something is not objectively, independently imaginal, whatever it is, we've, we've went through this on, on this in this talk earlier, um, part one, I think it was, but... Um, uh, so, so realizing that, remembering it, recognizing it, and being aware of it, uh, keeping in mind that concept, you know, again, very, very lightly, um, it helps establish us, open us on onto the middle way. In other words, it's soul making, sensing with soul, the the realm of the imaginal, the, an imaginal figure or imaginal perception of something is in the eye, in the in the senses, in the soul of the beholder. <clears throat> Another way of saying that is, uh, again, we said it before, is the imaginal is really a way of looking. And and by way of looking, I mean oh, that includes a way of conceiving, a way of relating. Yes? Um, so nothing is, so to speak, objectively or independently <coughs> imaginal. Um, the imaginal arises as a dependent arising, dependent in part on the way of looking. Yeah. So that, as I said, uh, that twentieth aspect um, as a concept, as an awareness, as a recognition, helps uh, for some people. Helps um, in the uh, establishing of that middle way, the imaginal middle way. Now, for some people, this talk or this teaching that. Um, Perception, or actually any perception, um, whether it's imaginal or material, is dependent on the way of looking. This teaching that anything is dependent on the way of looking um, is tricky. Um, When one hasn't quite seen it for oneself in practice through deep fading and all that, and the way things... uh, manifest dependent on the way of looking and what's wrapped up in the way of looking. And then it, it comes as a teaching, and I know I emphasize it over and over again, and for some people it's it's a little tricky because the, the usual <coughs> uh, way of thinking and understanding can't help but conclude that if something is dependent on the way of looking, whether I sense something with soul or I... Uh, have this imaginal figure or this beautiful perception of sacredness and if it's dependent on the way of looking then mm, somehow it actually can't be real then because our usual way of conceiving of reality is independent of the way of looking having objective existence Um, and it can't be real therefore it can't really have value and it can't really be sacred Um, so this is troubling it's a uh, and 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 where because I emphasise it so much, it can be a kind of a bit of a stumbling block for some people, um, and inclined to sort of do away with that element. Um, so a couple of things about this. I would say that uh, again, a deeper understanding, journeying deeper into that whole um, 
experimenting and playing with and exploring ways of looking and the whole notion of fabrication and that whole you know, revelatory journey, beautiful revelatory journey. The deeper one goes at a certain point, um, one really sees for oneself, one understands in one's bones the emptiness of everything. That means it's not that objects are dependent on way of looking, meaning that the self somehow, or the mind, or the awareness, or something here in the subject, or um, the way of looking, this is real, and it forms a, a real basis for what is not so real. Um, we go deeper on this journey into understanding emptiness in practice. It has to be in practice. And um, and we understand that everything is empty. Self is empty. Subject is empty. Awareness is empty. Mind is empty. Ways of looking are empty. They don't inherently exist. Um, and what that does, because everything is empty, and equally empty, if you like, then all becomes, rather than one thing is valuable, and in relation to that or relative to that, this thing is not valuable. This is sacred because it's real, and that is not sacred, um, not because it's not real, and not and therefore not valuable. Everything, because everything is equally, deeply, mysteriously, mystically empty. If one really goes into the roots of what emptiness means, or what we can sense of what emptiness means, um, and it is that everything actually becomes sacred. Everything becomes valuable. Everything has this status of um, the, if you like, traditionally Buddhist middle way of being neither real nor not real. Um, and there's a magic in that. Um, in in how it is and how things are and and they're appearing but being empty. Uh, so it rather opens up the door to more sacredness, more comprehensive sacredness, and more possibilities of kinds of sacredness. So I've talked and written about this before. I'm not going to go into it right now. What I want to emphasize right now is the 21st element of our list, which is the sense of participation. Um, I'm emphasizing that because, um, in contrast to this um, kind of um, uh, immature or not not quite full um, understanding of a dependency of way of looking, um, which then reifies either the way of looking or the subject or the self or the mind or awareness that does does the looking, does the sensing. Um, the, the the notion of participation, um, to me, it's, it, uh, it gives a sense of a dependency on the subject, on the way of looking, on the mind or awareness or self, but not not without any um, objective pole or, or, or pole of value in the object, um, pole of sacredness or reality in the object. So this sense of participation is the 21st uh, node or element. And uh, I said, when I mentioned it in one of the earlier parts of this talk, um, the idea of participation, the notion of participation, it preserves autonomy in an understanding and a sense of non-separateness. Do you understand? So when, when... something participates in, in, in some way in something, it's kind of got its own autonomy and kind of non-separate. 
And the kind of particip- sense of participation we're talking about, the concept of it and the sense of it, meaning, it's, again, it's something sensible. We, we, we perceive it. I'm not just talking about an idea, just an idea. Um, is, is a kind of a mystical one. Um, so we might have a sense, for example, and a concept of participation um, in a divine archetype. So we're working with this imaginal figure, uh, perceiving this imaginal figure, and there's a sense, I'm somehow participating in, in the divinity um, that's, that's uh, so to speak, that I'm perceiving. In, I'm participating in an archetype. So the archetype actually needs my participation. And yet I, I kind of witness that archetype. Um, uh, I participate, or I get, can get a sense and, and a, a, a concept of participating in, in the mundus imaginalis. But again, it takes my participation. My participation is a part of it. Uh, it supports it, it feeds it, it nourishes it, it transforms it, it changes it. I am not separate from this mundus imaginalis, and yet it's not just um, it's not just a part of me or reducible to me or just a kind of just a figment of my imagination in the in the poor meaning of of what that means. I can get a sense a concept of participating in the always already happening in hierophanic time of whatever it is that I'm uh, <coughs> witnessing participating in, a part of, partaking of, fabricating of the image. Get a sense, a concept of participating in 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 the eros of the divine or the divine eros. We talked about trace that movement in the uh, and that, that evolution of that kind of sense. Um, very particular, I traced it in the Eros Unfettered talks. One really gets a sense, a perception, mixed with the concept of my Eros is is somehow I'm participating in some larger, deeper, more mysterious, more unfathomable, more divine uh, Eros. Uh, and, and similarly with the mind, that one's own mind, one's own insights, one's own perceptions, one's own conceiving, one's own holding of ideas and entertaining of ideas and and the arising of ideas, that one is also, um, one's mind is somehow participating in, in uh, divine mind, in the Buddha nature, in the cosmic Buddha nature. What excuse me, also gets a sense, can get a sense and a perception of participating in the intersubjectivity uh, of uh, the imaginal other or the object or the thing, person being sensed with soul. One participates in the intersubjective communication of eros flowing back and forth and love flowing back and forth between the, the, the self and this other um, in, in soul making. One can again get a sense as as all this deepens. And I, again, I would say, and the, the, the trajectory I traced um, in some of those talks in yours unfettered with all this is is I would say it's a natural evolution. It's actually natural and inevitable evolution of the sense of things and the concept. If we if we're following this path at some point, don't need to rush it or hurry it or whatever, but. 
one can get a sense that um, this perception that I'm having right now and this soul making that's happening right now and then perhaps my whole life is is um, uh, and even the life of the culture and the history is is a participation in the larger unfolding um, uh, mystery of soul making in some larger unfolding of again the divine uh, soul making it's the soul making happening of the Buddha nature and I and my soul making all that that involves and all the elements and aspects and dimensions of my being uh, that that involves in that perception in that conceiving in that openness in that in the body in that all of it is is participating in some much larger um, mystery of soul-making that's unfolding. The Buddha nature soul-making. The soul-making of the cosmic Buddha, the soul-making of the divine, the soul-making of the God, whatever. So to me, um, when I get a sense of this, and, and I find it quite hard to convey, it's a, it's a deep and mysterious concept. You know, we're not talking just about, for example, when the the food delivery truck pulls up at Guy House on a whatever day it is, and um, go out and uh, you know several coordinators help the work yogi and the kitchen coordinators um, uh, help them unload the food delivery and put it away. Once you say, "Oh, I participated in the um, in the unloading of the food delivery today at Guy House," so that's a very sort of um, Typically, it would be quite a flat, sort of uh, unmysterious meaning of the of uh, participate. I'm talking about something that yeah includes that, but but somehow more, somehow more mysterious. As with many of the other um, facets and dimensions of the imaginal, this one may not be evident at first. Um, so. I mean, it may be, but it may be one of those that's that's kind of like it 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 emerges to our uh, attention and, and consciousness. We notice it more um, after time, after after we've kind of got more used to the imaginal realm and the perceptions. Then we say, "Oh yeah, there's that there's that quality." It's quite um, it can be quite intense the sense of participation, but but it can be really really subtle, really really subtle. And there's so there's a great variety in in uh, how how sort of palpable palpably and obviously it manifests, but it's a I'm talking here about a deep and mysterious concept, a deep and mysterious sense of mystical participation in something. All right, number twenty-two is. Um, what what we want to call i think now um the concertina the imaginal concertina or the concertina of the imaginal we used to uh, and i think one or two people picked up on it um i can't remember when but we used to use the phrase vertical spectrum or vertical spectrum of the imaginal and i think um i think we want to retract that it's um it was a little unfortunate choice um so and replace that same concept, but really um, by the concept of concertina. You know what a concertina is? It's like a an accordion um, uh, that, that that kind of opens like that. Uh, so 
uh, or like um, what's it called a bellows thing that you that you in you know used to blow air on a fire something that kind of expands to reveal um, or like like in, a, in those kind of old file cabinets they kind of stretch open to expand to to reveal all the individual files or they can be kind of compact and you don't you don't see all the all the files there. Um, so again, there's probably a better word, but just just for you to get a sense of what what, what I mean by this. Um, <clears throat> so when there's um, uh, an imaginal image or a, a perception of, of something sensed with soul, it's also sensed to be in um, a context of possible other images. In other words, this imaginal, this way I'm seeing my beloved. Um, and sensing her, him, them, imaginally, um, sensing them with soul, and it's like an image comes, and it's sort of them, and it's sort of not them, it's coming through them, it's a theophany. Um, but there's also a sense at that point, um, and again, sometimes this might be quite dim, sort of at the edges of our consciousness, of, oh, this this is one image that I'm perceiving in, in a kind of context, in a larger context of other possible images. Because I could perceive her, sense her with soul, him, them, with soul, and um, uh, the, an, another image might ca- kind of come come to the fore or replace this one or be there at the same time or be lingering in the background. So it's as if this concertina, I really mean, it's almost like there are other possibilities, other possible perceptions, so to speak, waiting in the wings. Again, like like a theatre, like uh, you, you, this character, this image is waiting for its uh, time to come on stage. Um, this actor is waiting. There's sort of a sense of other possibilities in potentia. Yes, um, some of them, or sometimes some can be. Some of these others can be clearly um, sensed or perceived. Even they're, they're kind of individually discernible, so that one is actually perceiving. Um, at, at times, two images at the same time, and sometimes two images at the same time, um, along with the sort of regular um, per- perception of my beloved other, or this uh, tree, or w- w- whatever it is that I'm sensing with soul. Other times, the, the, the sense of the concertina is more vague, it's more kind of implied, again, like a kind of p- pregnancy. Um, There's sort of... Uh, Either the, the the images there are, are vague, or they're just very dimly perceived, or we just have a sense of, ah, oh, yeah, the concertina is open. There is a concertina, um, but the uh, the individual images that are that are there are not um, are not certainly not coming to the fore, and and also often not individually perceived. And and maybe that's more the case sometimes that it's just a sense of context. So we can notice um, again. This might be new, a new uh, um, element, and I, I'm not sure if I've talked about it before. But we can notice when that um, concertina expands, or it kind of like the concertina comes online. The context, um, or this range of possible images, or just the sense of a range of possible images, it kind of comes alive, or it comes online, so to speak. It's just expanded. Um, and again, we can notice that concertina and tune to it, and that helps the whole sense become uh, more imaginative. It helps the imaginal constellation um, 
become more uh, filled out, more more genuinely imaginal. So it might be, um, and with that, uh, you know, allusion to waiting in the wings, it might be that this could be regarded this element of concertina or aspect of concertina in the context may be regarded as an aspect of the um, the theatre element um, or the the middle way. And again, you can see as we go through this list how some are really um, some elements are implicit in others, uh, or or kind of qualify others, as we said before. Um, but in a way, th- this presence of this presence of the sense and the concept of um, a concertina or or the context um, prevents us from kind of getting too narrow in our perception, getting too fixated. Again, to quote William Blake, it prevents us from collapsing our uh, relationship and our perception and our conception into a kind of single vision. Because we, we, we're aware of the concertina, and that does something um, to the whole tenor, texture, uh, ether, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the realm, the air of, of the... Uh, perception. So I hope that's clear. Okay, last one for now. Um, well, last one actually. Um, I'd say for now. Um, uh, concept. Okay, so concertina was 22. Concept. Uh, concertina or context is 22. Concept is 23. And again, I uh, mentioned this at the start. Uh, when we rattle through the list. Um, so, imaginal perception, sensing with soul, is not non-conceptual. It's not a non-conceptual perception. Um, I, uh, you know, one of my little quibbles by now is with just how freely and um, lazily I, I, I feel um, that that notion of non-conceptual uh, gets banded about in some spiritual circles, in some Buddhist circles. Um, I, I, for myself, would, res- you know, I don't mean by concept thinking, I've been through all this before, but I don't mean by, don't equate concept with thinking. Concept is a lot more subtle. Can, you can have concept, you do have concept, without actual, you know, discursive thought, um, or heavy-duty, kind of intellectual, you know, uh, uh, big fat ideas, um, complex ideas. So I reserve um, the word non-conceptual, the, the category of non-conceptual, just for moments of the cessation of perception, just for moments when there is no fabrication and um, all perception is um, pacified, to borrow Nagarjuna's phrase. Um, there's a fading of all perception, cessation of all perception of feeling. And that is a non-conceptual experience in my book, and only that really qualifies. Uh, and again, I've been written and talked about that. I'm not going to go into it too much right now. But um, for me, any and all and any perception has concept woven into it. And certainly any um, Dharma perception, if you like, or perception that arises in the context of Dharma practice, um, so including mindfulness, mindfulness is not non-conceptual. Bare, so-called bare attention is not at all non-conceptual. Um, 
there is always some sense, no matter how faint or subtle, of subject, object, and time um, as the basic sort of tripod of fabrication of very basic perceptions and conceptions. So wherever there's any perception of any kind of subject, any kind of object, any kind of time sense, or sense of the present moment even, um, or the present, uh, that there's concept involved. Um, and actually, in, a, in many of these practices, Dharma practices and uh, regular sort of uh, mainstream Dharma practices and mindfulness, there's all kinds of concepts woven in, all kinds. Um, and in imaginal soul-making practices, sensing with soul, um, all kinds of concepts, a great range of concepts are brought in, uh, or, or involved, let's say, um, an important part. So um, we mentioned the the, the, con- the conception or some kind of concept, no matter how vague it is, of the divine nature of um, this other that I'm perceiving, this imaginal figure or this uh, other that I'm sensing with soul. Um, the divine nature and origin is, you know, is a perception. It's also a concept. We might also say that. Um, Implicated in this concept, in this idea of concept as a as an important element of the imaginal conception, is uh, um, we might say at least um, also we're not the concept that's involved is not reductive. As I said, it, this is this image is um, a representation of some. Uh, my compassion or my, um, uh, you know, um, something in my history too tightly or narrowly or flatly conceived. So the conception has to be not too reductive or narrow that way. Um, But things like, excuse me, um, this eternality or timelessness that we're talking about, that also is a conception. Always already happening is a conception as much as it is a perception. Um, if we have a uh, an imaginal figure, um, could, could be anything, and they have certain qualities. So, um, you know, this this uh, uh, warrior um, image that I sometimes shared, um, or warrior images, I think it was plural, that I shared um, some years ago. Um, there's the conception, uh, among many others, of their nobility and their courage, and their dedication and devotion. These are all conceptions as much as they're perceptions. The whole conception and sense of an imaginal figure's autonomy and personhood, subjectivity, their soul, if you like, or them as souls, um, is also a, a concept as much as a, a sense. Um, love, uh, as, as another element, is um, a concept, of course. You know, it's also... Um, um, not only a concept, isn't it? It's a lot more than that, as are all these elements. They're not just concepts, but there is a conceptual element as part of um, any any and all of this. Um, what we were just referring to a little while ago about um, the participation of my mind in the divine mind. Participation of either the, the thinking, the... the, the um, the concept conceiving um, or or the perceiving or both the participation of your mind in the divine mind that's again a concept as much as it's a a, a sense 
an imaginal sense. Um, something akin there is actually a long tradition of that kind of thinking in certainly in, in Western spirituality. I don't know if it started with Aristotle and his idea of the active intelligence. It might have been before that, and then it was modified and went through a kind of evolution. Lots of um, spiritual traditions and Kabbalah and uh, others uh, draw draw on that and transform it and use it as quite a, a central kind of um, mystical principle in their in their conceptual frameworks. But we also get a sense of this kind of thing, the participation of mind um, in in each other's minds, for instance, or in the divine mind. Um, we get we get a sense of that, I think, in our life. We get we get a a, a glimpse of it, a taste of it at different times. So, for example, um, when when there's a, a, a kind of creative artistic flow, and um, and ev- even if that's not necessarily something that happens instantaneously, like the um, oh, I keep forgetting those Zen drawings that you what the word is for that that you do very quickly, or or a haiku that just comes really quick, or a, um, uh, or you know some phrase that comes when you're improvising music or something and there's a sense in the moment of wow something just came through but also in the longer stretches of sort of struggle with a big creative project over a long time something might take two or three years to complete um, whatever it is um, writing a novel writing a symphony writing a you know book or whatever um, and and you can still get a sense of of um, uh, this creativity that's happening, it's me and it's not me. I'm participating in some... My struggle with this, my creativity, my um, uh, application of mind in, in and through the creativity is a participation of my mind in something larger, call it divine, whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, but also between each other, you know, and I think I mentioned very briefly on a retreat once, so... You know, sometimes like um, people sharing humor, that that moment when um, you and someone else or or a group of people, um, oftentimes it's, it's, well, who knows whether it's more common with two, there's a sense of like just grasping something together um, intuitively and the, the the spark, the flash of communication that happens there, um, the sort of brilliant intuition that happens, um, the connection that happens in finding something humorous or seeing um, what's humorous. And, and, and sometimes it would be very hard to actually articulate what it is. And there's something happens in the communication of that between human beings. Um, but also also with poetry and with, with, with language and with love and um, communicating love and uh, you know, sometimes non-verbally, all that. There's some way we kind of participate in some greater mind together, and that's how we can have these kind of intuitive flashes. We participating together in something. We kind of get it together um, in in a brilliant moment of kind of uh, revelation that defies any kind of mechanistic translation from one place to the other through solely through certain you know uh, um, flatly conceived materialistic means so this kind of uh, concept and sense is something that we can um, get get a sense of in our life I think as well 
But as as I said earlier, when we're talking about participation as an idea, as a concept, as a notion, this say participation in the divine is a it is a concept, um, but it. I say it's a very hard to articulate, very hard to define clearly. And perhaps, that's partly what I meant when I said it was a mysterious and deep concept, perhaps it defies such completely clear articulation. So, you know, we could give another analogy for participation, something like the arm or the hand of a clock. You know, um, Big Ben's um, big hand uh, is... is uh, is part of the clock and participates in the clock's functioning. Um, the clock needs that, you know, to, to be a fully functioning clock. It needs, and yet it's not the clock. It's um, so it's participating, but that's much too gross and mechanistic analogy for the kind of sense um, that that we can get of of this kind of deeper, more mysterious participation. <clears throat> when we practice um, more with the imaginal and with soul making and with sensing the soul, and on that on that note, we can um, again draw attention to the fact that many of the concepts we use in this um, soul making logos um, and conceptual frame, you'll notice. Um, I don't know if it maybe irritates you or maybe you're thankful for it, but you'll notice that. Many of them are quite kind of vague as concepts, or if you like, open. So when we talked about um, today, when we talked about meaningfulness, and the, the, the suffix fullness is is a, is a leaving open. There's a kind of infinite possibility there. Un- inexhaustible is a word we've used in the past. A kind of I can't kind of discern everything that's involved there. Um, s- similar with. Uh, uh, Love, similar actually with the concept of soul. It's a kind of deliberately vague and open concept, um, and soul making is also somewhat vague and somewhat very precisely defined and delineated. All kinds of nuance and subtlety and qualifications and uh, specificities and particularities and things to notice and things to include and things to exclude and blah blah blah. blah. But actually. At in another way, or at the same time, it's it's a kind of vague and open notion. And this relates to one of the elements on our list, this business of having soft and elastic edges. And I think I said at the time, not just imaginal figures, but also the concepts. The concepts that are part of soul-making and that actually lend themselves best to soul-making are ones that um, have... If they don't start with it, eventually they have, and um, their edges get soft and elastic and stretchable. So there's this kind of vagueness and openness of concept on on the one hand, of a lot of the concepts involved, and there's this um, birthing uh, of um, delineations, as I said, subtle nuances and differences and discernments. There's this, and there's this, and then on the other hand, there's this, and there's this, and it's slightly different than this. And the the, the whole soul-making movement, the whole soul-making dynamic, um, because of what we've been through in describing in the way that Eros Psychologos uh, work to fertilize, inseminate, complicate, expand, enrich, deepen, and widen each other. Um, there is the um, creation and discovery of more um, discernments, differentiations, delineations to make. 
so there is at the same time as this kind of vagueness and openness at the very same time there is a increasing kind of subtlety both in conceptual terms in in terms of the logos and logoi involved and in terms of the sensitivity of the being in terms of what is what we can actually sense uh, there's delineations and discernments there so again you've got this kind of straddling vagueness and openness on one side um, precision and delineation uh, of and nuance and subtlety of discernment in all kinds of different ways on the other because um, there is the ongoing creation discovery of othernesses othernesses, other concepts other aspects, other dimensions and sides and um, elements of things um, but we as, as I said uh, at some point, I think it was in Eros Unfettered um, we need um, a conceptual framework, and we need to use concepts in a way that serves what we're doing. And what we're doing is soul-making. What we're interested in, what we're devoting in this, for now, in this paradigm, in this in this uh, stream of the teaching right now that I'm talking about, what we're interested in, what we're devoted to is soul-making. And therefore the way, the conceptual, the larger conceptual structure that we invoke and establish and present, and also the individual concepts um, need to um, serve that, and so they need to be both open and both loose, and also very refined, fine discrimination, subtle, um, sensitive discernments of, um, of of the senses, the inner senses, the outer senses, and and the um, and the thinking, the con- sorry, the conceiving that's wrapped up in the perceiving. And again, there's this straddling, this bridging, this including of the two. But we need, because because it's exactly in that um, straddling that we will, uh, or rather exactly that way of relating to and holding and conceiving of conceiving um, and concepts, um, it's exactly in that manner and that way uh, that soul-making is supported. You understand? So if we're talking about classical scientific method, that's we want something different. Um, you want kind of sharper concepts, or you know some social sciences, or whatever. You want actually quite sharper concepts that are measurable and strictly definable, and either it is or it isn't. Either it's a zero or a one. Um, computers work that way, you know, all that. If we're interested in soul making, then our relationship with conceptuality again is not non-conceptual. We're deeply interested in conceiving, in logos, in the concepts we're entertaining. We develop flexibility with that. We develop richness and sophistication. And, and we that comes alive to us as something beautiful, not non-conceptual. That whole, um, if you like, aspect of soul-making, the logos aspect, starts to really come alive if it's not already and is an equally important and uh, necessary and valid part um, vitalizing part of the whole soul-making movement. Um, so we're not we're not going to be non-conceptual, but the way that we um, the kinds of concepts and um, and the uh, the way that they get born and the way that they straddle this kind of vagueness and openness and softness and elasticity. Uh, sorry, softness, elasticity, vagueness, openness on one side, and um, refinement of delineation, discernment, um, 
that way of straddling is also very much part of the way we relate to, handle, and think of concepts. Yes? Okay, let's, uh, let's stop there for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.